Hi, I'm Chris Sarandon, and welcome to Cooking by Heart, where we talk about the vivid memories of the food we grew up with and the people and the stories attached to that time in our lives. My guest today is the incomparable Diane English. Diane English created, wrote, and executive produced the groundbreaking comedy Murphy Brown, which ran for 10 seasons on CBS and for which she received three Emmy Awards and two Writers Guild of America Awards for outstanding writing in a comedy series. Over the course of its run, Murphy Brown garnered 62 Emmy Award nominations, 18 Emmy Awards, two for Best Comedy Series, and a Golden Globe Award for Best Comedy Series. Murphy Brown returned to CBS in 2018 with English, also returning as the showrunner and executive producer. She has also written a column on television for Vogue magazine and co-wrote PBS's adaptation of Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, The Lathe of Heaven, for which she received her first of five Writers Guild of America Award nominations. English has also created the critically acclaimed comedy series Foley Square for CBS and executive produced and wrote the CBS series My Sister Sam. Among her additional television comedy series, English has created Love and War. She was the creator of Inc. and co-creator of a show called Double Rush, all on CBS, and was co-creator of Living in Captivity on the Fox Network. Diane also wrote, produced, and directed the feature film The Women, which English received, for which, rather, English received Women in Film's prodigious Crystal Award and the MMPA's Diversity Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. In 2011, she received the WGA's highest honor, the Patty Chayefsky Award. Ladies and gentlemen, I am very happy and thrilled to finally be talking to Diane English. Hi, Diane. Hi, Chris. Finally, we got we got this uh, technology working on our side. Yes, we did. We had a we had a uh, a quite adventurous day yesterday trying to get through to each other. I always start the show uh, with provenance, where we're from, because I think it has a lot to do with food and the way we grew up. You, you grew up in Buffalo. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Buffalo, New York, and um, my whole family is still there. Oh yeah, I'm the only one that left. When the moving van came to take me away, it was like a spaceship had landed in the neighborhood. No one ever leaves. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> but um, yeah, I go back uh, several times a year. And uh, my mom just turned 99. Wow. So I uh, have very good reason to go back of course. as frequently as I can. Right. Now, siblings? Yeah, I have one brother who's younger than me by six years. Is he still there? Yes, he's still there. Everybody is still there. Still there. <laughs> Literally the only one yes, who left. Exactly. Now, lest lest we we be uh accused of disparaging Buffalo, I've been there a couple of times. And uh -huh. I, I remember a few years ago my daughter and her husband, he was uh they're both in the private school uh teaching uh area and they were offered jobs at a school in Buffalo, a private school, and they just thought the city was spectacular great deal of uh, cultural um, amenities yeah. available. Uh, it's close to the Canadian border. It's close to so yeah. many wonderful things, including also they have a, a great football team, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, Buffalo's, Bills. yeah, right, <laughs> great town. But uh, not a town that is necessarily, um, um, what, commensurate with uh, one's show business or journalistic aspirations, I would think. 
Um, yeah. But first, let's, let's let's talk about your family, and then we'll 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 get into that as well. So, mom, dad, tell me about them. So, um, mom uh, is Italian, second generation. Oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, so I'm half, mm-hmm. and uh, on the on the other side, on my father's side, uh, English, Scottish, Irish, right. Uh, and um, made for a very interesting family dinners. <laughs> well, that's we're going to get there definitely. We're going to get there. What well, uh, Dad did? What he was an electrical engineer, and he worked for the Niagara Mohawk Power Company because mm-hmm. uh, Niagara Falls and Buffalo are right, right. next to each other. Right. And uh, my mom, you know, was a pretty much stay-at-home mom, but. Um, you know, raised us kids, but also had part-time jobs because she loved to get out of the house and do things. But she was an aspiring vocalist. You know, she was uh, in high school. She was a member of a, uh, her her two girlfriends uh, formed a group called the Tune Triplets, and they did local USO tours. And then um, she did some war bonds um, um, advertisements that right. were in movie theaters. But when she got married, my my dad said, no more performing for you. No show business. So she had to really wait until she was in her late 40s and they divorced that she went ahead and really built herself a nice career. Interesting how, and this uh, oddly sort of parallels something that my mother went through, not from a performing standpoint, but just from being under, for want of a better word, under the thumb of my dad, who was a a Greek immigrant and and very much an old-fashioned guy in a lot of ways yeah. when it came to his relationship with her. And she was much younger. But it wasn't until they divorced that she finally found her, yeah. for want of a better word, calling in life. Uh, and she right. ended up having a great time the second half of her life. Yeah, yeah, same, you know. And, and uh, my mom ultimately remarried and... Um, you know, but she she you know had her own band and you know was well known in Buffalo. Um, your wife Joanna knows her and yes. and her sing and you know and so um, you know her second half was very different from her first half. Uh, but it's a it's it's not an uncommon story for no. women of that era. Yeah, you know she was born in the 1920s. Yeah, you know, and, exactly. And I'm almost too. 19- 40. So yeah, mm-hmm. same. Yeah. So, so mom was at home. She cooked, yeah. did she cook Italian? Listen, um, we grew up in a two family home that was built in 1902 for the Pan American exposition. Mm. My grandparents, her parents lived in the apartment below and our family was in the apartment above. And so there was a lot of intermingling, but paternal or maternal? Grandparents, the maternal, maternal, so the, Italian, so the Italian, yeah, okay, yeah, and and so um, my grandmother was an amazing cook, and so my mom really never learned to cook because she didn't have to, and so our meals, and I know my mom's listening to this, so I apologize. <laughs> but I'll get to the good part later. Um, she was not a good cook, and so our meals. I remember it's like vegetables were cooked, green vegetables were cooked till they were yellow. Yes. Steak was cooked till it was like shoe leather. Yes. You know, and there was like a very small repertoire of 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 meals. But then 
Ultimately, when she remarried, she remarried a man who wanted to open a restaurant. He was a really good cook, and that's where she learned to cook. And oh. now it's become, for the second half of her life, a fantastic cook. Unfortunately, we moved You didn't out, experience so. that, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't experience that growing up. Right. But growing up, the best thing that happened to me and my brother was when McDonald's opened, because <laughs> when my parents would go out for dinner, they you know, plop down the sack of hamburgers and French fries, and right. we were thrilled. So, you know, and but a lot of the meals also were we just go downstairs, you know, to my grandmother's and and often, you know, eat down there. But every Sunday there was a big family meal, Italian, mm-hmm. either Italian or go to the paternal family. And there was a whole different kind of meal. Mm-hmm. And sometimes on holidays, they would merge, mm. which was interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So well, yeah. first, first, let's talk about this. So- so then you guys didn't eat communally with your grandparents all the time. There were just certain occasions when you would go back and forth. Right. So, you know, there was extended family in Buffalo on the Italian side. Right. So on on every other Sunday, we would go to the apartment downstairs and my grandmother would have a big table set and she'd have been cooking all day. And it was either lasagna or spaghetti and meatballs mm. or, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole house filled, you know, with with that aroma. And, um, you know, it was, it was just great, you know, and, and, but, you know, typically they never want to share the recipe because that's their job and purpose in life. And if you know how to do it, they're fired from their job. (laughs) Right. So really never, by the time I got downstairs to see how she was making that sauce, it was made already. Already. I don't know what time she got up, probably in the dark, you know, to do it. Yeah. And always better when it's been simmered for a while anyway. So. Oh, for a day. Yeah. 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 So then there would be these big gatherings downstairs with your grandparents on Sundays and or certain holidays. Uh, particular yeah. holidays, were, were the, was, was it an Italian Christmas or was it an English Christmas? Um, it was an Italian Christmas and a Christmas Eve, too. Yeah. You know, fish. Right. And then Easter was the other side of the family, normally. Um, now, my dad's sister and mother lived together in what was then a growing suburb of Buffalo called Orchard Park, which football fans might recognize as the home of the Buffalo Bills and made headlines this year for having seven feet of snow in 24 hours. So, um, but they had a little tiny house, with a little tiny kitchen and um, they ran a bakery and a restaurant. Hmm. James Beard got his Christmas cookies from my aunt every year. Wow. I mean, she was that amazing. And again, of that era, you know, she probably would have been like a Food Network star yes, if it were right. now. Yeah, you know, exactly. But, but we would go there on alternate Sundays or on Easter and have usually like a standing rib roast, Yorkshire pudding, and and fabulous um mashed potatoes um and and the easter baskets were like nothing you've ever seen before the Mm. kids all got these unbelievable easter baskets they she had antique molds for rabbits and chickens that were pure chocolate and dressed in actual clothing what that these ladies made 
that worked for her, and they wore little wire rim glasses, the <laughs> chocolate bunny. What a wonderful the image! Baskets were. I mean, I'm telling you, it was. They were such works of art. the The little chocolate nests were made of dark chocolate and coconut hands. Great, yep. the coconuts. Yep. yep. And jelly beans for eggs, and and I mean, we looked forward to that every year, you know, because, I mean, if we had had camera phone, you know, oh, yeah. we would have photographed each one. Snapping and it's away. lost now. For there's no pictures of this stuff. But. Mm-hmm. Interesting too that, uh, uh, and that's generational to a certain extent, and that is that, for instance, my mom, who sort of trained me as a cook when I was young, because there were no girls in the house and. My brother and I were around. My brother wasn't as around, around as much. He was much older. And so I was the sous chef. Mm-hmm. But there were no recipes. I basically just watched her and, and watched right. the feel of what was going into things and right. the taste. And, right. and this also occurs. I did a, a, a interviews with both um, uh, Jacques Pepin and Lydia Bastianich. And both mm-hmm. of them describe growing up very much the same way, both in at home and in restaurants. When Jacques Pepin yeah. worked in high-end French restaurants, he was never given a recipe. He had to stand by the chef and watch mm-hmm. and watch mm-hmm. and watch. Mm-hmm. But not a bad yeah. way to go because essentially no. food is a dynamic process. Proportions are not necessarily as important as the taste. It's about yeah, the taste. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the great cooks really have an instinct yes. about things, you know, and, and uh, I know some amazing cooks who have restaurants who, you know, when somebody says you should write a cookbook, it stymies them because then they have to start writing down recipes yeah. that people can follow with measurements. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, baking is a real alchemy. It's yes. very specific. and. Um, I was never good at it because I don't really like to do things that way. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a good baker. And I come from, obviously, a, my you know long line of bakers. But mm-hmm. I prefer the Italian method, you know, of a pinch of this and a little bit of that. And <laughs> right. then you taste it and see, you know, or just instinctively how you can put something together just from what's in the refrigerator or in the pantry, you know, that right. you can actually make a pretty interesting meal out of. Yeah. I hate throwing food out. So if I'm about to go on a trip, I will open my refrigerator and see what's in there. So I don't have to throw Clean it, it out. away. Yep. It, it, whatever it is, it always goes with pasta. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, was there a difference in the atmosphere and the English and in the Italian meals? that you experienced when you were growing up, just in terms of the the talk around the table? What was that like? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Italians were, you know, it's my mother and and my her brother and his family and uh, the cousins and and uh, the grandparents. Mm-hmm. And it was just this big family, loud um, and lots of jokes. And um, when the meal was over, the men went into the living room to either watch a game or play cards yep. and the women cleared the table and did the dishes and gossiped yes. and, and uh, there was no dishwasher mm-hmm. and that meal was so messy. We were in there for hours washing pots. Mm-hmm. And it was a fun time, you know, to be, to be together. Well, there's a, there's a community and a fellowship 
that occurs over whatever the task is that you have to accomplish, particularly when it comes to family and food. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it is either the cooking together or the cleaning up. It's, yeah. yeah it's, it's a communal activity. And um, on the other hand, the the English side of the family, mm-hmm. was, the table was smaller, you know, the group was smaller, and it was a little bit more reserved, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. There were times when we all got together, and um, they loved the Italian food. I mean, who doesn't love Italian yeah, yeah. food? That was always a treat. And we loved the pies and the cakes and the, you know, that yeah. side. So, you know, and, and everybody got along great. It was just two different tribes, you know, yeah. that, that, you know, came together over a table. What a wonderful way also to, to grow up in a multicultural household, because that's the, that's the makeup of this country, essentially. Well, that's, that's how so many of my friends grew up, how many people grew up in Buffalo, my age, because it was such a diverse town. There was Irish and German and Italian and Jewish on my block. Mm-hmm. And um, and we all knew each other and we all hung out together. And, and uh, you know, and th- there was a point uh, in time in the 90s when Five of us writers from Buffalo had the five top 10 shows on the air. And we were all approximately the same age. And some of us went to school together, you know, and and it was, was it something in the water or (laughs) was it that kind of experience that you get growing up there? Yes. Where you just experience lots of different types of people yes. and lifestyles yes. and so on. Exactly, which gives you a much broader experience to draw on when you're when you're actually trying to reproduce it. Yeah. Or turn it into art. Yeah, it turns it it, it, it be, you you create really good interesting round characters yeah. rather than stereotypes. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Did you guys go out at all? We almost never went out for dinner. We always, if we, if it was somebody's birthday, um, that would be the only time we would go out mm-hmm. for dinner. Any favorite places? Well, there was a place in Buffalo called the Royal Pheasant, long gone, but that was always my choice because they had a lobster tank, and my mother introduced me to lobster at a young age because she liked to go there on her birthday. Mm -hmm. She treated it like it was a very, very special occasion, very special food. And we all got dressed up. You could pick out your lobster from the tank and uh, probably not the one you got, but yes, right. (laughs) uh, (laughs) But, you know, I I had this picture of it in my head, red booths and, you know, sort of dim lighting. And it just seemed like a very fancy place probably if went back now it mm-hmm. wouldn't seem that way yeah yeah but like exotic exotic to a child yes exactly um oh we did occasionally go out on uh for fish fries also on friday nights mm. that was kind of a tradition um in buffalo because we grew up catholic and so you ate fish mm-hmm. and if we didn't go out it would be that block of fish we call it block O fish. We don't know where it came from. It was in a square block 
and it was defrosting on the on the counter mm-hmm. and smelled the whole house up and right. we hated it so much and and so sometimes we would just go out to a fish fry and usually that would be you know at a local tavern and it was just right. you know sawdust on the floor beers kind of thing mm-hmm. you know and, and so that was that was it but we did not go out on a regular basis mm-hmm. at all it was too expensive yes yeah middle class family Oh, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yes. I'm also interested because I've heard stories from various guests who have Italian American backgrounds of what the Christmas meal was like. Is it fish at Christmas? No, that would be Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. Yeah, that was usually Christmas Eve. And so there would be something. I mean, it's supposed to be the seven fishes, but we, you know, my grandfather was very old school. He loved something called smelts, you know, it was a little fish yeah <laughs> oh you just you just completely threw me back uh, uh, right? 60 years yeah yeah we got yeah. smelts all so, the time yeah yeah he, uh, he he loved if you could get them with without any danger of getting some kind of illness after eating them he loved <laughs> clams and oysters mm-hmm. um and there'd be maybe some kind of shrimp or something uh but we didn't go for the whole seven you know that yeah, was yeah. a bit much right um but christmas dinner was my mother's job. So that was a ham. Oh. Yeah, a ham with with um, you know, usually rings of pineapple attached to it. Right. And then all the sides, you know, the the green bean pasta. Which is very American. Very American, yeah. but you know, but that we would have the English side of the family over, oh, okay. you know, for Christmas. Yeah, so yeah. we did the traditional Christmas ham. Mm-hmm. We had a beagle growing up, and he would eat anything. He was in the kitchen the day that my mother and I was helping her, and we took the ham out of the oven, and it slid off the platter. And everyone was in the living room, and it wasn't a big house at all, so right. you could hear what was going on in the kitchen. And and they were all in there having a cocktail, and you could hear the splat. <laughs> you know, on the floor and the dog, he took a beat. He couldn't believe his eyes that the ham was on the floor. Anything on the floor was his, you know, so there was a scrambling of, of dog paw nails, linoleum, you know, and trying to get the ham before. And we sort of just went, Oh, it's the five second rule and put the ham back back on the And I don't know if anybody was aware of what had happened in there, but you could definitely hear that splat because it was a big right. Any any uh, other memories you have of anything that might have entered the family diet at some point or other that was exotic in any way that was totally different from what you were used to? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, like I said, lobster was the delicacy for us. You know, we were we lived on a Lake Erie, you know, so. Our our seafood was imported, mm-hmm. or it was you know frozen freshwater fish, freshwater yep. fish like perch or something like that. Right, right. Um, yeah, but you know, other than that, it was everybody had that Betty Crocker cookbook. Yep. You know, the red and white checkers. Yep. You know, cover right that had the file. That it was the recipes the were. File, yep. It was like yeah, the the three hole punch. Mm-hmm. Thing. Yeah, I had one for a long time. Yeah. I still have one, <laughs> uh, and I I use their recipe every uh, every year for their cranberry orange bread. Oh, 
Yeah. Which I highly recommend. Oh. Um, so no, I think we kind of stuck to what we knew. Uh, and it wasn't until I moved to New York that I started to experience different foods, right. Chinese food, Japanese food. These were all totally untried by me mm-hmm. until I got there in my early twenties. Before we get you to New York in your early twenties, did you have any friends whose families ate differently than you and you were invited over? Oh, yeah. Um, my best friend, Susie Krause, and I were best friends from kindergarten. Mm. And she lived about a block and a half away. Uh, she grew up in a Jewish household. Her family was Austrian, first generation, mm. also lived with grandparents. Her father was a doctor. Um, it was a very sophisticated household, a lot of art. Her mother was a painter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, they they listened to classical music. And uh, that's where I was introduced to Bagels and Locks. Mm. Ah. And boy, did I love that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still a brunch favorite of mine. Yes. And then she would come to our house and get the spaghetti and meatballs, you right, know? Right, Cultural, cultural interchange. Exchange of cultures. Yes, right. right. What about school food? What was that like? Did you bring lunch to school? Did you eat lunch at school? We ate lunch at school that we brought. I mean, we brought our lunch there in grade school. Right. Um, and it was, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, mm-hmm. tuna fish, whatever, you know. In high school, we uh, were provided lunch. And it was... You know, now we're in the early 60s, you know, so it was just, you know, some kind of meat patty. And, you know, I don't even remember it. It was just completely uh, forgettable. Yes. Yes. As most school lunches are. Although these days, interestingly, not so much. Some of the schools have gotten at least more nutritionally adventurous, if not uh, culinarily adventurous. That's good. And colleges. I don't know what. Uh, well, let's talk about your, 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 so you're leaving home. Now, wait, you went to college in Buffalo, right? I did. I stayed there. I, I tried not to, um, but, uh, you know, I, I did the math on what it was going to cost yeah. to go to some of the schools I was accepted at mm-hmm. out of town and just decided not to. And, you know, my family certainly couldn't afford that. And I didn't want loans. So I went to school in Buffalo and I majored in, education, because at that time, no matter what you wanted to be, if you didn't have a teaching degree to fall yep. back on, yep. and you were female, you yep. know, you might be in trouble. Yep. So, um, but that, that turned out to be a really lucky thing for me to be going to that school. Um, because it happened that that was the year that a wonderful man named Warren enters, who was a theater director in New York, renowned, especially known for fixing plays mm-hmm. uh, that were in trouble. His name rings us a, a slight yeah. bell for me. I mean, yep. he brought, he was a co-founder of the Cherry Lane Theater. And, mm-hmm. you know, so he decided he wanted to teach for one semester just to get out of New York. And he chose our school because we had a theater department that was in its infancy. So he had an opportunity to make his mark. Right. And I joined that theater group because I liked 
um, I guess I had a little bit of the performer in me from mm. my mom's genes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and that's really what changed my life because he recognized something in me and my ability to write and direct. And he insisted as I graduated that I should go to New York. And, you know, so I taught for one semester just to accumulate a little cash. And then off I went. This is after graduation you taught? Yes. For a semester? I taught for, yeah, I taught for one semester and uh, in an inner city school. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I had enough cash. I thought I had enough cash for a year in New York, but I was sadly mistaken. Oh, yes, <laughs> I'll bet. Now, just to digress slightly, because you said you taught in an inner city school. What was that experience like? Because I had a similar experience, not teaching, but but performing for inner city students. And it was quite extraordinary. What was yours yeah, like? Yeah, it, ex- it was a great experience, actually. I really loved it. And I loved my students, and they were all disadvantaged. And, you know, they had never put on a play. Um, and they were in need of some money to fix the gym. And I suggested to the principal that maybe we do a play and, you know, charge nominal admission and run it for a couple of days and see what what kind of cash we could raise. And so we chose little Abner because it was a musical and they had a, a nice little band, you know, and, and because you could make your own costumes mm-hmm. and the rights were really inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And so I got all of my students involved in this. And honestly, it just opened up worlds for them that they, they as theater does for people that yes. they didn't know existed. And, and a couple of them have gone on, to have careers in the theater. Oh, how great. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, that was really exciting. I mean, you know, we had we had uh, kids painting a backdrop, you know, from the art department, and then the, the band had to learn the music mm-hmm. and, you know, put it all together. And we ra- raised a fair amount of money. It was it was really great, you know. And, and for a brief moment, I thought, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing by leaving here. But uh, ultimately, I did. Right. History, history is uh, uh, better for your having moved on, uh, I must oh, say. Thank you. Uh, and so then, so it's, it's directly to New York. Why New York? What, what drew you to New York City? I had visited it once, uh, twice, actually, once with my mom when I was about 13, uh, where she and a girlfriend and her girlfriend's daughter, who was my age, just decided they were going to take a little road trip and mm. put us kids in the back seat and drove to New York. And we stayed there for about two days. And I think the adults found it very overwhelming. And and I, to me, this was where I was going to go. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved every minute of it. I remember going to Horn and Hard Arts, you know, oh, and where yeah. you could get pie out of that little, yeah. you know, put a quarter in or a yeah. dime or whatever it was. Yeah. And, and that was what my, my dad's first job when he came to this country was oh, at Horn really? and Hard Arts. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. We walked along Broadway and Broadway at that time, Times Square was just, you know, a cesspool. But, you know, all of the marquees and the lights and, you know, I'm 13 years old. No. But, you know, I, I'm like, this is for me. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we went home and and I never forgot about it. And then in high school, our senior trip, 
was, and I went to an all girls Catholic school. So there's 50 of us and some nuns. And we went to New York on our, uh, by train on our new our senior trip because the world's fair was on. Ah. And so we went to the world's fair. Um, and, uh, one of my girlfriends and I had been obsessed with the tonight show starring Johnny Carson. And we kind of snuck off one day and, uh, we went over to 30 rock to see if we could get in and meet Johnny Carson. Hmm. I mean, we were like 17 years right, old. Right, right. And, uh, we got as, we actually got as far as the floor that the tonight show was on and the doors open. And there was that big marquee with a receptionist desk at the Tonight Show. And mm-hmm. walked over and I said, we'd like to see Johnny Carson if he's around. <laughs> <laughs> We're from Buffalo. We're just touring. And There's only a couple like, of 17-year-olds from Buffalo could get away with. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, but again, it was it just solidified my you know, my, my feelings that mm-hmm. that's where I had to go. And then in college, we had so many students from New York and the New York area. Um, and we were all in the theater group together. So I knew I was going at some point. So you just pack up your bags and yeah. head south. Bag. <laughs> yeah, straight down the throughway. And you're yeah, in New York my City. Brother, my brother and I, we, I rented a U-Haul because it was one of those little little ones yep. you drive, you right. know, and, and he had never been to New York. And uh, he was, oh, how old was he? Four, six, 15, 16, I think, you know, and uh, we went together. I drove. I had very little to take with me, but couple pieces of furniture and stuff. I had already gone ahead um, for a week and rented a studio apartment. Mm. And then we drove there together and he stayed for a couple of days and we saw Shakespeare in the park. And, and, uh, you know, it was, it was just, it was great. You know, I had literally no money uh, by the time I paid my rent, you know, and I couldn't afford a phone. Um, you know, so if you wanted to contact me, you would have to leave a note on my mailbox mm-hmm. in the lobby of my building. Um, but I look back on that time as just one of the happiest times of my life. You know, just just the whole world was in front of me. Exactly. And I didn't, you know, have have any um I didn't have any fear, you know, a- about what I was doing. Yes. Yeah. I didn't really know anybody. I knew one person and uh, I didn't have a job, Yeah, you know, and, and I didn't care. And at, at that time in our lives, we don't know what we don't know. Yes. It's a good state. It's a of good mind state to be, to be in, in yeah. <laughs> when you're starting out and, and rather than succumb to what could happen and uh, I, I can't do this, it's basically right. what the hell, you know, what else am I going to do with my life? Why not pl- plow ahead? Exactly. Try it. You're at that point where you don't have responsibilities to children or spouses or, you know, anything that's going to hold you back. Mm -hmm. So it was the time to do it. And uh, so so you started job hunting, obviously. I started job hunting. And um, I I remember going over to CBS and saying, um, I'd like to work for the Mary Tyler Moore show. (laughs) <laughs> just right. they said how fast can you type and by the way 
the Mary Tyler Moore show shoots in Los, in Los Angeles. Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wound up because I was a very good, I was a writer. So I was a very good typist. And, um, and so it turns out that was a good skill to have. So I wound up uh, landing a job in public television, WNET 13, actually first NET, which was the parent yeah, company. Right. And, um, and uh, I, I, I worked there for a couple of years, um, very low pay, as you can imagine. It was public television. Mm-hmm. But it was my first exposure to how TV and theater and film could merge because I was working um, for Jack Venza in the theater in America department. Mm. I wound up being his secretary Mm -hmm. and he was quite demanding. And uh, honestly, I was a terrible secretary, but he was very patient. Um, And, uh, and I met a lot of people there, Bo Goldman and, you know, and I, I learned to read scripts and, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, an apprenticeship in a way. It was, it definitely was. Yeah. Uh, one of my jobs before that one was I was answering fan mail, fan mail written to Big Bird. (laughs) So I wrote in the voice of Big Bird, you know, (laughs) responded to these kids. Yes. I ultimately transferred to another department that was just starting out called the Television Laboratory. Michael Schamberg had a group there called Guerrilla Television, and they were experimenting with um, little handheld video cameras. Ooh. You know, up until that point, right. all the cameras were big, hulking. You yeah, know, and the huge. wheels were huge, right? And how and they had they had done this great documentary about the 1972 Republican convention, and they snuck in there with these little cameras. Nobody took them seriously, and they made a great award-winning documentary. Mm-hmm. One of my jobs there was to write grant proposals for artists. Um, Palavolis, the dance theater, mm-hmm. you know, he worked with all of them. Nam June Paik, who was just a very renowned video artist, mm-hmm. doing his there it's a really interesting place to be and uh and i was writing the grant proposals and apparently had a real talent for it because i was able to convince people to part with their money you know <laughs> like for foundation and so on right and um and uh so while i was there uh the the people who ran it david loxton one of them um rest may he rest in peace uh they proposed doing the first television movie that PBS had ever done. Mm. And it was an adaptation of Ursula K. Le Guin's award-winning novel called The Lathe of Heaven, Mm -hmm. science fiction or speculative fiction, as she called it. Mm -hmm. And they had hired a fancy screenwriter from New York and, um, or Los Angeles rather. And he, uh, turned in multiple drafts and, and they were just weeks away from shooting. And and they were very unhappy. And um, they gave me the script to read and said, just give us some notes, you know, because we're going to have to pull this thing together. And so I took it home and I read it and I knew what to do with it. And so I rewrote it. I wasn't asked to do that, mm-hmm. but it was easier than writing all these little notes yeah, in yeah. the margin. 
And that's the script they shot. Wow. And then there was an arbitration through the Writers Guild. And so I got shared credit. And then we got that first Writers Guild Award nomination Mm -hmm. for it. And I didn't have an agent at the time. And suddenly they were all knocking on my door because the New York Times had done this great review and a big article about it. Mm -hmm. My name was in there Mm -hmm. and they started to look for who this person was that they hadn't heard from. Right. So I got an agent and he said, you got to go to Los Angeles. Otherwise, you're just going to be writing after school specials and you probably want to do more than that. So so that's what happened. Mm. So now you're 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 on the west coast uh same same experience or you're now uh, at least you've got some money in your pocket well at, at the time that at that time now i'm married okay ah, so okay. so my my then husband and i uh moved to la and we tried to duplicate new york um by moving into the Melrose area where we could sort of walk. Right. And we wound up moving, renting a little house behind the city cafe. And the city cafe was very pivotal in changing the LA food culture. Really? It was a tiny little place Mm -hmm. run by two women. And they, up until then, the food, scene in Los Angeles was red sauce Italian and very heavy French. Right. And that was it. This was what, 70s, early 70s? Now this is later 81 uh, when I okay. now moved to LA. Okay. And we're going back and forth. We're trying to keep our apartment in New York. Yeah. And, you know. and they were doing such interesting things with with food. Um and, you know, doing things like um, rhubarb chips. It sounds terrible, but, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the beginning of California cuisine. Yes. You know, we're a small cluster of experimental restaurants. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even have a grill. They would grill in the, you know, on a little hibachi in the parking lot, you know. But <laughs> we would go there three or four times a, you know, a, a week mm-hmm. for, for um for food and it was great and it began a more sophisticated palate i think um so yeah so then but eventually my agents got me a job writing a tv movie and i then then began you know being able to afford things like a car <laughs> <laughs> which helps in los angeles yes. yeah yeah it yes. does did you experience as you were uh, ascending the trail of getting to where you wanted to go because a lot of your work, particularly you know thematically with Murphy Brown, has to do with women bumping against the glass ceiling. Yeah. In what way did it, was your personal experience reflective of what you ultimately ended up writing about in that show? Interestingly enough, I I never felt held back by my gender. And did you feel? And did you feel you were encouraged by men? Very much so. Very much right. encouraged by men, uh, and and opened the doors for me. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. Murphy was somebody who had already cracked the glass ceiling. True, you know. Yeah. So I was writing about somebody like my friends and myself, who you know, in the eighties, 
um, had come through that wave of the feminist movement and were now finding their way in what is still a man's world, you know? So I put yep. this character down in the middle of a Washington DC news magazine mm -hmm. as the main female anchor. I mean, she was a unicorn in that regard. Yes. I just like the idea of somebody being, you know, able to, to uh, more than make her way in that world, but she was ruling the roost. And, and uh, I think she was, turned out to be embraced by so many women oh. because we all wanted to be her. <laughs> yes. And also somebody who spoke her mind. Yeah. She, she sometimes didn't have a filter, yes. but she did not suffer fools and yeah. she was not a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. You know, we all grow up, all of us gals, we grew up, you know, being people exactly. Pleasers. And she shed that, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I actually rubbed off on both Candace Spurgeon and myself. We started to take on her characteristics, <laughs> you know, as the seasons went on. Right. Right. But, but what a, 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 a brave and brilliant way of uh, creating this character rather than making her, uh, I, I don't want to disparage Mary Tyler Moore, who uh, in, in her own way was groundbreaking. Uh, oh, very it, much so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but the polar opposite of the, at least personality-wise. Yes. And, and, uh, th was there ever any pushback in terms of, oh, you got to make this character less abrasive? You have to make her more likable? Oh, absolutely. That's the word you hate is likability, yep. you know. And and um, I created her as a 40-year-old uh, and a recovering alcoholic and a very flawed individual. Yep. And so when I was first pitching this, the request was, can she be 30 instead of 40? Of course. And can she just be returning from a spa where she was kind of stressed <laughs> out instead of the Betty Ford Center? And I said, you know, it's so uh, important to her character to, to not shave down those edges. Yeah. Why don't you let me write a first draft the way I see it? And then if it's, you know, something that you're still afraid of mm -hmm. then work on it together and at that time you know the networks were the cbs people were like okay all right we'll we'll let you do that mm -hmm. and now, by the and by the way you're no. being you're being on the one hand conciliatory but on the other hand saying let me do it my way first yeah there's a way of handling these things yeah. you know yeah. and and so a lesson for any listener or uh, aspiring writer out there who uh, feels that their their point of view is the only point of view. Your point yeah. of view is, but go ahead. Exactly. And I had already done two series for them. So I think I had earned my stripes uh, with them. That's true. And yeah. they did trust me to some degree. So I don't think I could have gotten that concession right, right out of the box, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, um, so I did that first draft exactly the way I wanted it. And the day after I handed it in, the writers went on strike. Oh. And it turned out to be a very long strike. And so CBS shoots its pilot. The, all the networks, the linear TV networks, shoot their pilots in the spring. Right. And the decision had to be made. Are we going to shoot this the way it came out of her 
typewriter Mm -hmm. or are we going to wait? And the decision was made to shoot it as it was. I mean, it was literally a first draft. Wow. That's extraordinary. The title, the title Murphy Brown was to me a placeholder because I didn't have a title yet, (laughs) but it stayed stuck. Yeah. And, um, so we shot it exactly as it was. And uh, it was scary, you know, as the creator, because you can't make changes. And, you know, as an actor, you, you know, sit around a table and read something and right away things pop out at yep. you that you want to change. Mm-hmm. But that the the fact that I had a brilliant cast and a brilliant director. It was an amazing cast. got us over the, right. the hump. Who directed that episode? Barnett Kalman. Ah. And he directed almost all of the first 100. Wow. That was a real bonding experience Mm -hmm. for all of us because we could only rely on ourselves. Amazingly, I got an Emmy for that script. That was my first Emmy, best writing in a comedy series (laughs) for that first draft. First draft. So another lesson is kind of trust your your instincts. Yeah, absolutely. And, And a lesson for executives out there Sometimes you need to trust yours too, because you know the, sometimes you just change things and it's just a linear change and it's not making anything better yes. or something yeah worse but. and also uh, also trust the audience and trust the audience, yeah, exactly because exactly. audiences are not necessarily uh, a, a monolith in the sense that they all uh, the same thing appeals to everybody right that we all have. Of varied tastes, and we're willing to be led into something new if it's something that has quality. If it's something yeah, that's interesting, that's the, that's the key. Is the is the quality, yeah. and and we were writing up to our audiences. We were not writing exactly. down. Yes, we had references to Indira Gandhi in the pilot, mm-hmm. to Camus in the pilot, and after the pilot was tested. The research department at CBS said, you know, only 1% of people get these references. We suggest that you not do them in the future. We said, no, that's our trademark and we're going to do them in the future. Right. And if you don't know who Indira Gandhi is or you don't want to look it up, you know, then, you know, we're not for you. Yes. And so um, we just continued on like that, assuming that our audience was smart and they were. And by the way, they were. Yes, exactly. And, you know, Norman Lear once said, you get the audience you deserve. So, you know, if you are writing down to people and assuming that they're not going to understand anything, mm-hmm. that's the audience you deserve. And then you're stuck in that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, one thing, and I'm sure you're probably tired of hearing about it, but it has to do with the uh, your ability to inject political ideas into the show uh, without any fear of repercussions. But there were there was one particular repercussion that became sort of famous, the Dan Quayle um, comment about mothers bearing children out of wedlock and fathers and this whole brouhaha that became national news right. uh, for a time. Uh, I'm struck by the fact that, w- was there any pushback from the network when that was happening? There wasn't any pushback. Uh, by then, we were four seasons into the show. And a big hit show. 
we were a big hit for CBS. They hadn't had a hit show in seven years. Mm-hmm. There were only three networks. Fox was, you know, in its infancy and wasn't even broadcasting every day. Mm-hmm. And um, and and so they just at that point were leaving us alone. They didn't want to mess with anything. And plus, I think they probably felt any publicity is good publicity, <laughs> you know. And it. Yeah. And and the and the debate in the country that it ignited uh, during a major presidential campaign yes. went on for an entire summer, mm-hmm. and uh, the audience just built because if you had not been watching that fourth season where Murphy discovered she was pregnant and then made a decision that was very difficult for her, but to have a baby mm-hmm. without the dad, and that because the dad didn't want any real participation in it. Mm-hmm. And and so um in repeats, people went back to see what everybody was talking about. Yes. And there wasn't a day that went by that the newspapers weren't commenting on oh, this. Oh, I remember other. the time very vividly. Yeah. It was uh, yeah. In fact, it's in the zeitgeist right now that you and I are talking about this because I was just in New York doing a long interview with CNN. They're doing a whole hour on this. Oh, really? Yeah, it's called Tinderbox, and they're doing a an hour on a couple of uh, TV shows that you know had a very big impact on mm-hmm. the culture. Right. And this is going to be their lead one, and so it's kind of in the zeitgeist again. And I well, and also I think particularly too because uh, the uh, um, the uh, rescinding of uh, Roe v. Wade by the Supreme yes. Court. Uh, has become a campaign issue, has become yes. a national issue that has not necessarily divided us, has really sort of brought the subject back up again. And uh, yeah. uh, I, I'm not going to get on the soapbox here, but <laughs> uh, but your rejoinder to to Vice President Quayle, or at the time, the Vice President candidate, right? He was a candidate at the time. He, uh, they were running for re-election. Ah, that's what it was. Yeah. But your rejoinder to him was very, uh, quite brilliant, I think. It had to do, could you remember it? I can't quote it verbatim, um, but, you know, I basically said that, you know, if you don't think that a single woman like her is capable of raising a child, then you better make sure that abortion remains safe and legal. Mm -hmm. So just you know, crystallize the hypocrisy of running on an anti-choice platform and then criticizing this fictional character yes. for, you know, everything under the sun, including being responsible for the L.A. riots and, you know, the <laughs> breakdown of the moral fabric yeah, of, Western of the entire Western civilization. Right. Exactly. And so, um, you know, that's it's just it still amazes me that, you know, this was a fictional character that that uh, touched all this off. but. I think it was important because it got the country talking about something that people weren't really yeah. focusing that much Absolutely. on. Absolutely. And um and I think it it kind of turned the election a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really there was a lot of backtracking that had to happen um by uh George Bush, original recipe Bush. Mm-hmm. Um and um and and we were we wound up uh, on the front page of the New York Times above the fold, mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole picture Murphy holding the baby, yeah, yeah. Hill on one side. But you know, I mean, yeah. it was 
was phenomenal, oh, really. Oh, it was an extraordinary moment, really. Yeah. In, in many, many ways. Um, I, I, will, I will leave that um, somewhat controversial subject. Uh, to me, it's not controversial, but to some people mm-hmm. it is. Uh, to to return a little bit to food and and sort of glide into our conclusion because first of all now do you cook now or, and if you do you said you discovered a great deal as you were as you were moving along in your career yeah I I definitely cook I'm a actually a good home cook mm-hmm. a very good home cook uh, I love making dinner parties um, you know wherever I am I. I usually have a lot of people around my table mm-hmm. and the kitchen's a mess and doing it tonight. Oh, um, oh great. <laughs> what are you cooking? Uh, you know what? I'm just going to light the grill because it's a beautiful night yeah. out and, and the sweet corn is in season. Uh, so I'm going to take some uh, local sausage and peppers uh, and onions ooh. on the grill in a, in a good bun and corn and a, some kind of tomato salad. Oh. And, you know, it's easy peasy. There's nothing complicated about that meal at all. Uh, no, um, but, but at the same time, healthy and delicious. Yeah. Yeah. You take, I mean, wh- where I am now in Martha's Vineyard, it's, um, it's, a you know, growing season and, yeah. and it's just every farm stand has the most delicious stuff in the farmer's markets. And you just want to, take advantage yeah, of that exactly you know? and you don't want to be lighting the oven and you know standing over a hot stove mm-hmm. too long so now i i always conclude with a question for my guests if there is one moment in your life be it a childhood moment or as you moved along in your life that you remember so vividly because there was a taste or a smell of food or something that pertained to food in which when you experience it again, it takes you back to that first time in your life? That's an, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a good taste, no, though, right? No, 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 <laughs> not at all. I immediately, as you were describing this, I'm immediately thinking of that block of fish. <laughs> and last night for dinner, I had... Fish and chips, uh-huh. you know, which is the complete antithesis of what um, that 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 fish was. And I swore that I would never eat fish after <laughs> experiencing. That was my only experience of fish, and I thought that's what all fish that's was. It, was right. this whole <laughs> smelling, and then discovered no, there's fish. some really delicious fish out there, yeah. and and now fish is probably the biggest part of my diet but um especially here in the vineyard it just comes right out of the ocean oh, yeah. so absolutely you know, oh. like almost every day I have fish but yeah it was a it was like a a bad a bad taste memory uh that has now turned into one of my favorite things so perfect perfect <laughs> <laughs> well i'm also going to at some point pepper you for a recipe because we post recipes of guests' favorite recipes, either from their childhood or from their adulthood, uh, that we put on my website. So I hope you'll join us with that. And Diane English, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me, Chris. This is super fun. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure to revisit our relationship because I haven't seen you in a long time. Yeah. Full disclosure, I was a guest at one point on one of the episodes of Love and War many years ago when my wife Joanna was a regular on the show. A little nepotism. 
in there. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and and uh, out great. Yeah, though. and I I uh, I, I uh, look forward to talking to you again. Yes, in person. Yes, and exactly. We'll have dinner, and I'll cook. Okay, it's a deal. <laughs> Thank you, Diane English. Bye.